most eminent threat to the church is not socialism. It is true that socialism has certainly hijacked some biblical truths and placed it on the platform of humanism. But socialism is not the greatest threat to the church. The most eminent threat to the church is not Muslims. We know that they truly are persecuting the church tremendously. But Muslims are not the greatest threat. We will certainly, the church will overcome Muslims. The, most, uh, the greatest threat isn't the government. And we recognize that certainly the governments of this world are more and more becoming increasingly hostile to the gospel. Even our own is actively becoming that way. Even hell is not the greatest threat to the church. Jesus promised us that the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. No, the greatest threat to the church is not external. It is internal. And how slow the church has been to recognize this. That there would be those who would rise from the ranks of the church itself who would have the look, the touch, and the feel of sheep. But inwardly, they would be wolves. Men and women, because of their unrestrained egos and desires, would acquire and develop an appetite for sheep. How appropriate it is as the Apostle Paul considers the wonder of worship and the blessing of fellowship, the impact of brothers and sisters that that have had on his life, that he would turn to Tarshish the scribe, the one who he's been dictating the letter of Romans, And he would say to Tarshish, Tarshish, write the words, beware, beware. I want to greet each of you this morning in Jesus' name and uh, welcome you to our continuing exposition of Romans. And um, one of the things that makes expositional teaching healthy uh, balanced and positive is that you deal with all the scriptures. Uh, one of the things that makes expositional teaching difficult is that you deal with all the scriptures. <laughs> uh, there are certainly some, uh, uh, some of the passages of scripture that are positive, that are wonderful to teach, And they just are a blessing. And then there are other passages of Scripture that are just uh, difficult because of the subject matter you need to cover. This morning, this is one of those passages. But as as pastors, we don't teach what people want. We teach what God directs us to teach. And this is what God sets in front of us this morning. And... um, there's a part of me that, that doesn't want to deal with this. But there's another part of me that has a passion that you would know what is in front of us because the need to change the course of the church. I want you to be informed. One of the reasons that wolves can operate in churches 
is because people are uninformed. As you look back through the church history, especially the conservative church history, the, the Anabaptist church history, it seems like the only thing we learn from it is that we don't learn from it. There are many who have come out of settings that have been hurt, assaulted, and, and wounded. And because of that, we are easy targets for wolves. Because of the anti-authority uh, attitudes we have. And we turn right around and we flipped upon others the very things we've come to hate about the church. So I can't emphasize that enough. We need to be informed. I think we can do better. The very reason that the Apostle Paul sets this passage in front of us, he wants us to be a part of the solution and not a part of the problem. It is true that the church has always had false teachers and deceivers and wolves. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 20, he says, I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And in 2 Timothy 4, he gives an illustration of Alexander the coppersmith. It's he says, he says he did much evil, and that the Lord and the Lord reward him according to his works. Of whom thou be thou aware also, for he hath greatly withstood our words. And at my at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. Apostle Paul had to stand alone. There's another instance of wolves. It's found in third. Third John, the epistle, John writes, he says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loved to have preeminence, he means he wanted to be up first, up front. That he says, he receiveth us not. And notice John's response, wherefore if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth. That means confrontation, Trading against us with malicious words, not content therewith, neither doth he receive the brethren, forbidding them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Isn't it amazing how many churches still have a diatrophies? Second Timothy tells us why or what drives those kinds of individuals. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. That means they're going to be savage times. They're going to be hurtful times, difficult times. For men shall be lovers of themselves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. In other words, they're going to look spiritual. They're going to be religious, but denying the power thereof. And he says, from such turn away. 
So that gives us some foundation for the text that we have in front of us. There are three questions we need to answer uh, as we look at this passage. What was happening to the church in Rome? Why was it happening? And then how was it to be corrected or how was it to be handled? Romans 16, verse 17, the Apostle Paul says, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division. So what was happening? There was division or dissensions taking place. There was a dividing, a separating. The word divisions is only found three times in the New Testament. It is found here, 1 Corinthians uh, 3, and then uh, it's found in Galatians 5.20. It's amongst the deeds of the flesh. It says in uh, 5.29, it says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, and you'll notice that one of those works is seditions. It's the, it's the same Greek word meaning divisions. We need to understand that divisions never come from the Holy Spirit. They are the work of the flesh. Division, divisions is no different than divorce. In that situation, someone is always being selfish. There is a sowing, there's a sowing of discourse. There is strife that takes place. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul says, Also of your own self shall men arise, speaking perverse things. Notice the reason why. To draw away disciples after themselves. It means they're going to distort the truth just a little bit so they can draw away people, so they can gain a following. Behind all of this is just they're in it for themselves. That's why it happens. For Wednesday evening class, uh, in the seven laws of the teacher, one of the things that we've learned, the fourth law is the law of communication. And uh, the teacher not only needs to know what he's teaching, the words or the, the things he's going to communicate, you have to know your student. You have to know how that student is going to receive the words that you communicate. Those who work division are absolutely experts at this, this part of the thing. They know how what they say is going to be received by the one they're communicating to. The hidden motive is always to divide. But you're never going to hear them use those words. The way they do it is they take truth, they distort it by insinuation, uh, They just distort it a little bit, and th the, the whole way they do it is to sow mistrust. And the targets is invariably those who, are, who uh, are in authority, the pastors, the elders, or those in the church, or, or someone who stands in the way of their control. 
The second word the Apostle Paul uses besides divisions is, of, is offenses. Notice that in, in verse 16 or verse 17. It says, And I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses. The Greek word is scandalon, and we get the English word scandal from it. And it, it, it besides the word scandal, it carries the idea of, uh, of uh, stumbling or hindering something. When there is an offense, people are hindered from trusting. You once, trumble, you once trusted someone, you get stumbled, and all of a sudden you don't trust that person, or trust is not possible. Again, the, the, the goal is to divide and to conquer. Scandalon means the bait stick. It's that little part on a, on a, a mouse trap that you put the peanut butter on. You cover it up, so all the mouse sees is peanut butter. Looks harmless. Those are the tactics that people use to divide the church. What they put out is very harmless, looks harmless. And the problem is, is that they're almost never up front. It is never overt. You're never going to see someone who wants to divide the church with out front of the church with a sign that says, don't trust the pastors. Don't trust the elders in the church. It's never going to happen. It's always behind the scenes. It is always those, those quiet innuendos, those quiet insinuations that are taking place. William Barclay gives us this description. He says, he is a man who speaks well but acts ill. The kind of man who behind a facade of pious words is a bad influence, who leads astray not by direct attack, but by subtlety. He pretends to serve Christ, but in reality is destroying the faith. On the surface, what they say looks spiritual, sounds spiritual, and in verse 18 it even says, by good words and fair speeches. It looks really, really good. But the poison is in the Kool-Aid. If you drink it, you face the consequences of it. Here's what's wrong with what they say. The Apostle Paul shows it. He said, he said, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. What's wrong with the message or what they say, the disease message they spread, is that it is contrary to sound doctrine. What they say never stands up to the test, to the whole of scripture. It's easy to take passages of scripture out of context. We've all done it. And uh, make it say what you want it to say. Um, but it, this scripture is pulled out of its context neither by insinuation or application 
Uh, it is twisted. It is contrary to the entirety of Scripture is the problem. It never stands up to that kind of a test. If you take what gets said and you put it into that context, it won't work. It doesn't square. So that is what was happening. Why was it happening? Why do individuals want to divide the church? He tells us. In verse 18, he says, For they that are, are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. In other words, behind that pious and spiritual facade is a self-serving individual. Someone who is just out for themselves. They're slaves of their own ego, and they are flesh-driven. No matter how spiritual it seems, you could be assured that the Spirit of God is not in control of that person's life. There is a greater desire for what they want personally than for what Jesus Christ wants. Now, who do these who are the victims of these people? The apostle Paul tells us that as well. Who do these kinds of people target? He says, for by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. You'll notice that these kinds of people who want to divide churches, they never go to those who are knowledgeable and are, and, uh, are seasoned. They will go to people who are very simple, very trusting, and who lack discernment and depth in Scripture. They are innocent, they are unsuspecting, they haven't a clue what the real motive is. You know, it would be a great moment to give all of you Four filters to run everything through that anybody gives you. That includes us. Run it through these four filters before you drink the Kool-Aid. The first filter is simply this. Is it in agreement and in harmony with all of Scripture? Does it measure up with the whole of Scripture? Secondly, does it glorify Christ? Does it glorify God? Thirdly, does this information equip me to be a better Christian? Does it make me more godly and more holy? And fourth, does this information promote harmony and edify the body of Christ? Does it, does, you know, if it passes through those four filters, it's pretty safe to drink. But if it doesn't make it through those four filters, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Now, when this kind of situation arises in a church, how are we to handle it? What is the proper mode of correction? There are three steps that need to be taken. 
The first step is observation. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them. It's in the present tense, meaning you can keep on keeping an eye on these kinds of individuals who want to sow discord in the church. We are to continuously be on the lookout and watch those who stir the pot. Those who want to cause trouble and cause division. We're to keep our eyes open on these, on, for these individuals. Now, this is not talking about those who ask honest questions. You know, in this church, we are open for you to ask. We encourage you to ask any questions. There's a big difference in wanting to grow in Christ and just wanting to cause trouble, to cause division. There's a big difference between the motives are different. The second step is confrontation. Notice what John says of Diotrephes. Wherefore, if I come, meaning when I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth. In other words, John is saying, Diotrephes, when I get there, there will be a confrontation and you will be answering for what you put, for what you said. The second step, we, we are to confront those individuals who want to sow discord or divide the church. Isn't it amazing how, how long churches put up with those who want to sow, uh, who, those kind of individuals who are just destructive, uh, sow discord, and the church just seems to be in a constant uproar and, and divided. Now, I, I know that these kinds of situations are never easy and they are never pleasant. Someone has said it is kind of like getting into a spitting match with a skunk. No matter who wins, you still smell bad. You know, even if you win, it's, it's, nobody ever wins in these kinds of situations. There's the third step. Separation. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned. It says, and avoid them. Titus 3 says, after a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition you reject. And in 2 Timothy 3, 5 says, for having a form of godliness and denying the power of the Thereof from such turn away. Again, this is not talking about people with problems and with issues. We all have problems and we all have issues. This is about someone who is seeking to divide the church. Throughout the years, I've heard the expression, uh, not necessarily in this church, but I've heard it. If you don't like it, leave. And I don't mind telling you, I think that's an incredibly shallow statement, and I detest it. There's, uh, it says a lot about the individual who uses it. 
There's certainly a lack of love in that statement. And even more, there's no understanding that we are have a calling of ministry of reconciliation. We are called to reconcile people. There's an even greater misunderstanding that how we've been equipped in Christ to minister to one another. We are equipped, the Holy Spirit equips us to build each other up. And the person who says is lead has no understanding of how he's been equipped by Christ. But in those cases where there is a refusal to repent after admonitions, those individuals who are destructive to the body of Christ, we are not only, is it appropriate, is separation appropriate, it is absolutely essential. It is essential. There must be separation. Throughout the years, I have attempted to be a student of life, and uh, I, I, I would rather learn from other people's mistakes than having to make them all myself. And I watched a group come out of a very conservative setting because of a number of disagreements. And uh, in the process, they all got hurt. And because of, uh, you know, again, uh, they just did. They got hurt. I'm not justifying either side. I don't. But because of the position they embraced, uh, I mean, they were very anti-authority anti-structure and anti-pastor. We don't want any authority in our group. We don't want any pastors in our group. We don't really want structure. And consequently, because it's a position they embraced, when they got together, there were times they had little prepared because nobody wanted to take charge or, or show some leadership in preparing something. They were so anti They didn't want to be seen as leading I asked one of the individuals of the group who I thought had some leadership qualities, why don't you lead? He said, oh, no, oh, no, no. There would be those in the group that would resist that. But here's the thing, it's just crazy. They came from a situation where they couldn't grow, and they straightjacketed themselves after they're out, they straightjacketed themselves so they can't grow. You know what they needed? They needed a pastor who was apt to teach. They needed it desperately. And after several years, they were so frustrated, they, they disbanded, and just all went their own way. Here's my point. Some of you come from very similar settings, and you've gotten hurt as well. And because of it, it's very possible for you to carry a deep-seated mistrust for pastors or anybody with any kind of authority. Again, I'm not saying the situations you guys came out, I'm not saying that pastors were not aligned. I'm not saying that. Could be they were. But what I want you to understand, that kind of mistrust for authority or for leadership or for pastors. There's two things that it does to you. 
first thing that it does is it makes you very, very vulnerable to anyone who wants to destroy the church because of your natural tendency to gravitate towards anti-authority. You are very, very open to anyone who has a different, who wants to say, hey, this is just, who wants to work against pastors. Here's the second thing that it does. You can never fully appreciate a pastor who functions under the authority of Christ. Why? Because of your tendency to look on the negative to justify your feelings of mistrust. You can never fully appreciate a pastor who is godly, who functions in a healthy way. You'll never appreciate that. Yes, I know before any of you say it, we as pastors don't always get it right. I know that. As far as I know, none of us as pastors are, pro are proclaiming perfection yet. There's a third thing I want to give to you, and that is anyone can become a wolf. And you know what it takes? All you have to do is be a self-serving individual who starts looking out for yourself. Want all the attention. Start sowing some discord. Start sowing the seeds of mistrust in a congregation. It isn't very long. So you'll have some little girl in a red coat knocking at your door saying, my, what big eyes you have. What big teeth you have. church at Rome, they had a great response. They were looking, they, uh, as they met these false teachers amongst themselves, notice what he says. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men. In other words, their response is they took care of the situation that they encountered. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf, but I will have you wise, would, would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Isn't that a great statement? I don't want you to know the evil from having to experience it. I would rather you have experienced righteousness and know. One of, the, one, of the, one of the things we have learned from these seven laws, practice does not make perfect. Practice makes permanent. That's why we need to be doing the things that are right, that are godly, that are holy, that are healthy. Because practice makes permanent. Verse 20, And the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ shall be with you. Amen. Allow me to leave this on a little more positive note. Each Sunday as you walk through those front doors, you would get to experience something that Jesus taught that is the disciples to pray for. Jesus taught the disciples to pray. He said, when you pray, pray, Our Father which art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Each Sunday as you enter this church house, you get to experience the blessings, the benefits, and the privileges of God's kingdom coming to this earth. The gift of music, the gift of worship, the gift of friendship, the gift of love, the gift of fellowship, the gift of hope, the gift of grace, the gift of faith, the gift of mercy, the gift of encouragement, the gift of pastors, the gift of teaching, the gift of truth. I don't know why God would have chosen any of us to experience any of these blessings. Because the reality is not one of us deserves it. But as each of us uses the gift and the talent that we have been given by God for the church to build up the body, worship takes place and harmony is realized. Some seem to think that while we're on this side, we can't imagine what heaven's going to be like. I disagree. Heaven is but the place where God and his people dwell. And I like to think as we come together each Sunday morning and we minister to each other, we worship, we experience a little bit of heaven. That's what heaven's going to be like. That's probably why when you you slide into your seat. There's just something about it. It feels like home. But God reminds us that we're not to take this for granted. We're to continue doing that which is right, that which is good. We're to continue growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we're to keep our eyes wide open anyone who might, might want to harm or destroy the things that we've come to appreciate. The church, the body of Christ, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, we just bow before you at this moment and uh, we are so grateful for the instruction of Lord, we're grateful for the light of it. Lord, we realize because of the nature, it's easy for any of us to be destructive. It's easy for us not to hear what God is saying and to hear our own desires and listen to our own egos. Lord, I would pray that in this moment that you would just, you would, as David did, search my heart, O oh Lord, know my way. See if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, we want to give you the, the glory, the praise, as you work in our hearts and as we work together and we build each other up and we love each other. May it be for your glory and for your kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name.